Well, once again, good morning and welcome to Union Church as we worship and glorify our God together. My name is Mark, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. Thanks, Paul, for leading us in our liturgy and to our worship team for leading us in our worship this morning. Well, we finished Mark's gospel, and today we start a, a new series on the life of Joseph. And so this is going to be a short series, just four weeks on Joseph's life. We're not going to read the whole account today because it's a, a rather long narrative. It's really the longest single narrative in the book of Genesis, really one of the most beautiful stories in the book of Genesis. In fact, Joseph's story starts with family betrayal or with family wounds, and it begins in chapter 37, where we'll be working today, and it goes all the way to chapter 50 at the end of Genesis, 14 chapters, but we're just going to be in chapter 37 today. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that this story comes on the, it comes on the heels of the story of the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And if you know their story, you know they had a pretty messed up family. And there was a lot of enmity between these two brothers. But at this point, as adults, they have reconciled. And now Jacob and his 12 sons are settling into the land of Canaan as God told them to do. So that's where we're picking up today, chapter 37, verses 1 through 36 of Genesis. And I'm going to make a few comments as we read through this text together. So it begins this way. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he, Joseph, brought their father a bad report about them, about his brothers. So we see here Joseph was the he was Jacob's youngest son, his 11th son here. Um, there, there were a bunch of boys in this family. And depending on how you grew up, like if you were your, your birth order in your family, if you, know, if you were like the oldest or the youngest, then um, you might would think about the younger child tattling on all the other children as a bad thing. Or maybe if you were a parent, and you had the youngest kid sort of keeping tabs on all the others. You thought of that as a good thing, but that's what Joseph was doing. He was keeping tabs on all the other siblings for his dad. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Now, when we see the name Israel here in verse 3, um, Israel is a name that previously God gave to Jacob, he changed his name to Israel. And so here when we see Israel in chapter 37, it's not referring um, so much to the nation or to the people of Israel, but when you see Israel here, Israel equals Jacob, same, same person. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in his old age. This is where we get into the real generational sin of this family, right? This should make all of us think about the generational sin that we may have in our own families, our own family of origin, and to ask the question of ourselves, how are, how are we dealing with our own generational sin, right? Are, are, we, are we dealing with them? Are we seeking to break those generational sin patterns, or, or are we passing them on down to subsequent generations, right? Now, in Jacob's family, favoritism had become the generational sin. It had been handed down in his family tree. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, the father, Isaac, had favored his son Esau. And the mother, Rebekah, had favored the son Jacob. And they played them off of each other. And it was a really messed up family dynamic. And now, now Jacob is doing what many of us have done. He's now passing on this generational sin into his own family. And with his children, this dysfunction of favoritism, he passes it on, right? Now, where does that go? You know, it's pretty easy to see where that's going to go. It's going to lead to hostility among the siblings. So we'll continue in verse 3. Jacob made an ornate robe for Joseph. So this is the, the robe of many colors that you hear about, an ornate robe for him. In that culture, this would have been a long robe. It wouldn't have been a, a robe really um, suitable for you know, working in the fields. It would have been a long, ornate robe with a lot of ornamentation on it, with tassels on it. And symbolically, this was a robe that would set Joseph apart as the birthright son, the one who would get a double inheritance over all of his brothers. Now, if you know your Bible, you're probably thinking, well, no, pastor, right? It's the oldest son who gets the birthright. And you would be correct in thinking that. Reuben was the oldest son, but Reuben had committed a sexual sin against his family, and he had been disqualified as the birthright son. And so he had forfeited that right, and now Jacob is kind of stretching the rules. He's saying, well, Joseph is the first son of my wife, Rachel, and so he's the birthright son. And technically, that's true, right? That's within the letter of the law, but it is certainly not within the spirit of the law of the, the birthright son. And so, so now, every time Joseph wears this ornate robe, all right, he's essentially rubbing it in his brother's faces, you know, that he's his father's favorite. So verse 4, when his brothers saw their father loved him, loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were all binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood up and all your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. 
his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream that he had had. And then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and all of the stars, they were bowing down to me. And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, he said, what is this dream that you have had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. So at this point, his dad is kind of realizing that he's created a monster here out of Joseph. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you out to them. Very well, Joseph replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So here again, we see, see Joseph's dad. He's sending Joseph out basically to keep tabs on his brothers, right? Not necessarily to go and work with them, but to to go, you know, are they drinking a lot of beer at night while they're grazing the flocks, you know, go and tell on them to dad. Verse 14, Jacob sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing the flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers. He found them near Dothan, but they saw him at a distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to one another. Come, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. And we can say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of all his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed his blood. Let's just throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them so that he could take him back to his father. And so we see Reuben's the oldest brother here. He's kind of been humbled in life. And so he's trying to rescue Joseph. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing. They took him, they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern, he saw saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes. That was a sign of mourning in that culture. 
And he went back to his brothers. He said, the boy is not there. Where can I turn now? And they got Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat. They dipped the robe in the blood and then they took the ornate robe back to their father. And they said, we found this. Examine it and see if this is your son's robe. Jacob recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, there's a little bit of irony here because back in Genesis chapter 27, Jacob tricked his own father by slaughtering a goat, taking the skin, taking some of his brother's clothes, and he tricked his dad. Anybody remember that? Right? And, and now his own sons are doing the exact same thing to him. Right? It's amazing that sometimes generational sins are handed down in families in, you know, in these incredibly precise ways. That's what we're seeing right here. And, and you know, you and I, we have an opportunity in our own generation to name our generational sins, to confront them, to give them to Jesus who has the power to change these generational sins of of curses to the next generation, to make them blessings to the next generation. We, we, We all have that opportunity. Now, that's not gonna happen in this chapter of the story, but we all have that opportunity. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He mourned for his son for many days. All of his sons and daughters came to comfort him. I think that's sort of interesting because they must've come with like fake tears to comfort their dear old dad here in his mourning. But Jacob refused to be comforted. No, I'll continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And and his fa- the father wept for his son. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, this is the end of chapter 37. Chapter 38 kind of goes off on another story, and then it comes back to Joseph's story in chapter 39. So, so chapter 37 leaves us with this cliffhanger that Joseph has now been sold as a slave in Egypt. That's it. What's going to happen? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out. Or even better, you can read ahead in your Bibles to see what's going to happen next with Joseph. Well, now, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time, the precious time you give us to worship you, together as a family of faith in your presence. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this this beautiful narrative in Genesis. And we pray that by your spirit, you would press these truths we confront today deeply into our hearts and that you would change and transform us. Father, today I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing, would be acceptable in your sight, and would bring you joy and would bring you glory. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So Joseph is betrayed by his family, those who were appointed to love him best, they betrayed him. Now, who was Joseph wounded by in his family? Well, first, Joseph was wounded by his dad, right? His dad was treating him as a favorite among his siblings. Now, did Jacob intend to wound Joseph? What do you think? Did Jacob intend to? No. No, I don't think Jacob intended to. Um, Some family wounds are unintentional. They are unintentional. You probably have some unintentional family wounds. We probably all do, right? But the effect is the same. They still bruise us, right? They still hurt us. They may confuse us. They may mess us up. Unintentional family wounds, that they are... They are either the wounds of a regular old sinner, right? Just as we all are. We all hurt people without intending to. So they're either the the wounds of just an everyday sinner or family wounds are the wounds of what Proverbs calls a fool. Somebody who kind of knows the right thing to do, but they don't do it. So these can be unintentional family wounds. You know, maybe somebody like, Jacob's wife told him, hey, you know, you really shouldn't treat one of your kids as the favorite. This is probably not a good thing to do. And Jacob may have even said something like, oh, I know, but I just can't help it, right? And he did it anyway. And so these are unintentional wounds in Joseph's life, either by Jacob being an unintentional kind of regular old sinner or by him being a fool, Now, who else was Joseph wounded by in his family? He was wounded by his brothers, right? Wounded by his brothers. Well, they decided to kill him, but instead they sold him as a slave. So some family wounds are intentional. We could say these were intentional family wounds, right? You probably have some of those in your life as well. We probably all do, right? His brothers knew this would hurt him to sell him as a slave, that this would wound him, that this would probably hamper his future, that this might cause him pain, that this might even end his life early. And they did it anyway. They knew these things and they did it anyway. Now that may have happened to you, right? Someone has hurt you intentionally. They knew what they were doing was wrong, but they did it anyway. And that is what the Bible calls evil. When someone knows what they're doing is wrong, that it will hurt you. That's an evil thing. Now, I don't know what kind of family wounds each one of you has. We all have some of them. But, but I, would, I would guess that we all have some unintentional wounds, and we all probably have some intentional wounds. The effect is the same. The effect's the same. And so for family wounds... As I mentioned before, it's very important that we acknowledge them and that we name them. Sometimes it feels a little, I don't know, it feels a little disloyal perhaps to our family of origin if we name an unintentional family wound. You know, they didn't really mean to do it. It feels a little disloyal to say that, but it's important 
to name these things in order that we do not pass them on, right? We, we want to name them so they don't become another generational pattern of hurt into our own families in order to have freedom, in order to come out of the grip of these generational sins, we, we have to name them. And so I just want to invite you over the, the ensuing several weeks to think about your own family of origin and what some of those family wounds may have been that you have been bruised by and to begin to name them, even, even just one, just name it Give it to Jesus who has the power to repurpose them for good in your life. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if this was a thing here, but probably 10 or 15 years ago, there was kind of this craze, you know, it was on, um, it was on like internet stuff. And, you know, we saw it in our community. I did it a little bit. It was this recycling or repurposing of, of shipping pallets. Anybody remember that? Right? I can remember. Like, you could get these old shipping pallets for free, you know, from companies or stores that were having things shipped to them. And then there would be, you know, stacks of these wooden shipping pallets. And so people were getting these pallets and breaking them down and, you know, sanding the wood and, you know, making furniture and making things out of them. We did a little bit of that. We had a temporary deck at our house. We made out of old pallet wood, made a few benches. You know, it was kind of like the cool thing to do there for a while. Maybe people, maybe people still do it. But the idea was this, like you could make something useful and even something beautiful out of, out of you know, cast off, you know, trash, out, out of things that nobody wanted anymore. And, and the same is true in, in every one of our lives, that even out of the ashes of your past hurts, that when you give it to God, He can make something beautiful out of those ashes. Now, chapter 37, this is just one chapter in Joseph's life. Remember, I said it's 14 chapters long, the narrative of Joseph. This is only one chapter of his life. And, and we could take this message today and the scripture that has been read, and we could interpret Joseph's life solely from chapter 37 in the book of Genesis. And if we did that, it's a pretty bleak story of Joseph's life. And oftentimes, that's how we interpret our own lives. We interpret our own lives and find meaning in our own lives solely based on the chapter that we are living in, or maybe the, the most recent chapter we've lived through, right? And so we'll tend to interpret our lives in this way. Well, my life is good right now. Good things are going on. My, I've got a good life. I've got a purposeful life. I've got a meaningful life. Or we might interpret our lives like, my life is bad right now. Bad things are going on in my life right now. I've got a meaningless life. I've got a bad life. Most of us interpret whether our life makes sense or does not make sense based on the most recent chapter we've lived. And if we looked upon the events of Joseph's life only on this most recent chapter we've read about Joseph's life, then we would miss everything about Joseph's life. We would miss the fact that this tragic, hurtful chapter is actually part of a much bigger and better story 
because it's not until the end of these chapters that we discover the most prominent character in the story of Joseph's life. I mean, did you, did you notice that? In these 36 verses that we read, the most prominent character is never mentioned at all. That's kind of odd in the Bible, isn't it? Right? Where was God in this chapter? The reality is that all of these hard, tragic events that we see in Joseph's life in chapter 37, they're really just meaningless by themselves if we just interpret them by themselves with that narrow view of this one chapter, right? But with the perspective of, of quote unquote, the rest of the story, which we're gonna gain in the coming weeks, right? What seems to be an accomplishment of evil, in reality, all of these events are actually repurposed to accomplish a great work of God. But at this time, right, in this one chapter, chapter 37, no human eye could see the divine in this chapter of Joseph's life. And in fact, you know, we would misinterpret everything if we just look in this chapter of Joseph's life. Now, toward the end of the story, beginning in chapter, 42, uh, chapter 45, that's the, the moment that Joseph next sees his brothers. So Joseph last saw his brothers when they pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to these traders going to Egypt. It's the last time he saw his brothers. Many, many years later, it's in chapter 45, Joseph again sees his brothers, and he sees his brothers in Egypt. And you can imagine when his brothers see Joseph again, they're a little bit distressed. And Joseph tells them, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. So apparently Joseph has gone through some inner healing in these, in these years, right, between seeing his brothers. And he says this, he says, it was to save lives that God sent me here. Now, when did God send Joseph to Egypt, right? We didn't see a command of God to his brothers to sell him to these traders and to send him to Egypt. There was just terrible, tragic, painful circumstances in Joseph's life. That's what we saw. But God repurposed them as part of his greater plan, as part of his bigger story. And Joseph says, God sent him to Egypt. In chapter 45, verse 7, he says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And otherwise, if Joseph had not gone to Egypt, then this whole family through whom God had chosen to bless all of the nations of the world and from which God would bring the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, this whole family would have starved to death in a famine if Joseph had not been sent to Egypt. And that's why God, that's why he could say that in the end, this was God accomplishing his purposes. My point is this, right? God is who is behind how these things end up. 
and later, you know, with perspective, Joseph can say, God was behind all of this, right? Now, mind you, God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of sin. Nevertheless, God was working behind the scenes to repurpose these tragic and hard and sinful things for our good and for his glory. Three times Joseph emphasizes that ultimately it was not his brothers who sent him to Egypt, but it was God. Three times he says that. And God used all the pain and all the sin and all of the betrayal. And then in the final chapter of Genesis, the final chapter of Joseph's story in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, as for you, speaking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. That was true. But God meant it for good that many people should be saved. Amen? God's never the author of sin. God is not the author of someone's betrayal in a family, of hurt within a family. But nevertheless, God can repurpose even these family betrayals in Joseph's life as a redemptive part of his bigger picture. The Bible's making it really clear here that there's more going on in chapter 37 than the human eye can see or can perceive, right? We can't sense these things until we're finally told God meant them for good. Do any of you do puzzles? Any of you like to do puzzles? Yeah, a few of you. We haven't, done, we haven't done puzzles in a while, but back during COVID, we did a bunch of puzzles, a bunch of puzzles at home. And, um, you know, with puzzles, you get your table, you get your puzzle, you dump the box out on the table. There's all the little pieces of cardboard, right? You get them all flipped over so you can see the, see the printed side of them. But with all those pieces, they really don't make any sense on their own. You know, you pick up one piece, Oh, it's, a, it's got some red on it. You know, pick up another piece, it's blue. Here's a piece, it's got some animal fur on it, right? On their own, they, they, they're just kind of random. They don't, make, they don't really make any sense. And then you remember, oh yeah, we've got the box here. And the box has the picture of the puzzle. What we're, you know, it's the bigger picture of what we're trying to do so that every piece, right, on its own, it doesn't make much sense, Right? But you see the bigger picture. Oh, yeah, there's a red part here, and here's some red piece right here. You know, and on their own, it's like in our lives, on their own, the, you know, the various events and the various chapters of our lives, the, the hurts, the betrayals, the disappointments, on their own, they don't make much sense to us because they're just little, they're little pieces. They're like those puzzle pieces. But God has the bigger picture in mind. God has, if you will, he's got the puzzle box with the picture on it. And he's always creating a better story out of our lives. That's what the New Testament teaches. 
I don't know if you've heard this verse, Romans 8, 28. Right? It's what the New Testament teaches. Have you heard this? We know that in all things that God works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's the hidden hand of God's providence at work in our lives. We can't always see the big picture. Most of the time we can't. We just don't have that faculty. We just don't have that vision or sense. But, but nevertheless, Romans 8, 28 says, God has called you according to his purpose. What I'm saying is this, if you're a Christian, then every single event of your life is like a puzzle piece. And God's working all these pieces together to make a, a beautiful, bigger, better picture, a better story of your life. You may not be able to see it now, but every one of those pieces has meaning and purpose in God's bigger picture. You know, what happens is we get, we get tempted to worry over every little piece, right? We can't see how it fits. It doesn't make sense to us because we don't have the box cover. We don't have the bigger picture. But God has the bigger picture. And so we worry, ah, oh, this piece doesn't make sense. Maybe there's a piece missing. But God's got every single piece. Not one piece will be missing from your life. Did you hear how Romans 8.28 begins? It begins, it says, we know, we know, right, that in that all things God works together for good for those who love him, right? So Paul's presuming something here. He's presuming that we know something, right? Do you know that? Do you know that and believe that and receive that, that God is working all these things in your life for the good, for his purposes? We know that. And if you know that, if you believe that, friends, that is the closest that you will ever get to the secret of life. Right there. We know these things. We believe this promise that because of God, we will live a better story and we won't be trapped in, you know, chapter 37 of our lives or whatever chapter it is of your life. It's hard and difficult because this is the reality of our lives. This is the reality that life is really, 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 really hard. And life is really, really, really hard unfair. We live in a fallen world. I mean, have you noticed that? Is that just me? No, life is hard and life is unfair, right? And we can spend all our time fighting against that or frustrated with that, or we can begin to catch a glimpse of how God has allowed us to be a part of his repurposing. And we do that by trusting in him, by leaning into Jesus because no single moment is the end of your story. No matter how hard it may be or no matter how hard it may seem, no single moment is the end of your story because if you're a believer, you know that this life is not the end of your story. 
And the story of Joseph, the larger story of Joseph, is telling us that not one single painful circumstance of our life can be measured by itself because they're never by themselves. They're always part of this bigger picture if you trust that your your life is in the hands of a loving God who can repurpose all things. So if you're a Christian called according to God's purpose, that means that you have assurance that you are headed somewhere. There is a Godward trajectory about your life. You may not be able to see the big picture right now, but you can have the assurance that you are headed somewhere. There is movement in a Godward direction in your life, no matter what may happen to you. And unless you look at your life with, the, with those eyes of faith, then you're just going to experience life as like one event after the other. Well, this is a hard event. This is a good event. This is a tragic event. This is a frustrating event, right? You're just going to see your life as just a series of events, and it's going to be hard, and life is going to be tiring, and it's going to be confusing, and your faith is, is going to wither. But if you can believe that your life is in the hands of a loving God, and that He is leading us on a trajectory for His eternal glory and for our eternal good, then you will find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your faith and in your life, even if in this moment you can't see the big picture. And so I urge you this week, as we've talked about these things, to to do some self-examination, to begin to think about your family of origin. What are some of the family wounds that you may have? What are some of the generational sins that may have passed down through the generations in your family? And begin to name them and acknowledge them. And begin to trust in God's promises before you, that His promises really form the true context of your life. And they set the way forward for us. He's got the box cover. He's got the bigger picture. And to trust in Him and Him alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray in the words of Jesus, would you forgive us our sins? Would you forgive us the ways that we have wounded family members? Please forgive us. And Lord, even as you forgive our sins, we want to be a people who choose to forgive those who have sinned against us, those who have wounded us and our families, those who may have hurt us grievously. We forgive them because you have forgiven us. Father, give us the courage to name our wounds, our hurts. Give us the courage to trust that you can repurpose them for the greater good in your time. And we thank you that in all things you work them together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. And we worship you now for your goodness and for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.